That was David Bowie there with Rebel Rebel. Um, welcome to the movie hour. With me, Paul Young. And me, Daniel Mumby. Right then, what should we start with, the top ten? I think we better, yeah, because we've gone past five past ten, so we should, uh, we should crack on, I think. Right then, uh, at number ten, we have Birkenhead. Which I really like. Um, it's not John Landis' best work by any stretch of the imagination, but the critics shouldn't have kicked it around. It's a good, old-fashioned eating comedy with a series of great, understated cameos, particularly from Paul Whitehouse. You should see it for that alone. Is there any reason, I mean, it wasn't, I didn't see advertised a lot. Mm -hmm. Do you think it maybe could have done with a bit more push or? Well, it was, as far as I could tell, it was on every single bus in Northumberland on the centre side of it. So I think it was getting a fair amount. I, th I don't, I mean, it, because it was released on Halloween weekend, it's always gonna, there's always a chance that it's gonna be crowded out by something else. Mm -hmm. Um, but also I, I don't think the distributors, I mean, it's, it's Lionsgate, which don't have a great reputation. So I don't, I don't know honestly why it did, hasn't done better. Um, Maybe it's one of those ones that'll just find its life on DVD. I think that's highly likely, actually. Yeah. But you, if you can see it in the cinema, go, because it's a good experience on the big screen. Uh, number nine, we've got another year, which I will defer to you, because that was last week's film of the week. Yeah, I haven't had a chance to see this in cinemas, but I've no doubt that, that I'm going to see it as soon as I can. It's billed as a great return to form for Mike Lee after the slightly grating happy-go-lucky. It's, you know, by all conditions, a really warm, genuine, funny film with proper characters. Yeah, um, and number eight we've got Let Me In. Now, we, we had a little bit of discussion about this before we came on air, because it's gone in at number eight, and I would consider that underperforming, wouldn't you? Yeah, it was, uh, this one I did see basically advertised everywhere on the inside of my own eyelids, sort of, <laughs> it was one of those type campaigns, and it's yeah. obviously the remake of the Swedish film, uh, let the right one. Let in. the right one, and yeah, get, God, there's too many versions of the let. The original <laughs> yeah. book. The original book is called Let Me In in Swedish. I think. So oh, that's well, where if, if, if this and this must be better. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's, uh, it hasn't hit money in America, and it hasn't doesn't look like it's going to hang around long here either. No. So um, I don't know whether we're saying is it because there's too many vampire films? Did people look and think that's a film about young kids that can't be scary? I don't know. I think it might also be the fact that because Let the Right One In was so unanimously acclaimed. A lot of people who went to see the original might think, well, the remake is pointless, I'm not gonna give the guy who directed Cloverfield any of my money, so they're boycotting it. That might explain the kind of campaign against it. Yeah, I don't know, I, I know, but just from personal screens on Love Film, they've, they've launched a new, uh, like, uh, they're, they're really promoting heavily the Watch Online feature that mm -hmm. they've got, and because it's now, you can watch it through your PlayStation 3. And one of the films which they're using to promote that is Let the Right One In, and I Am Legend, so maybe people have <laughs> That's been... That's an odd double bill. <laughs> <laughs> maybe people have been exposed to, maybe thought, well, this one's free, I'll just watch this one. Maybe, so, I don't know. Yeah, quite possibly, but, you know, if it doesn't... It, it is disappointing, but on the other hand, it's, you know, in many ways an unnecessary remake, although it might, you know, it's technically well put together. It was a bit, because it was the first one from the new from Hammer. Yeah, That's although true. it's not strictly Hammer, because it's backed by American money. It's uh, just got the Hammer name on it. But, uh, uh, to try and, like, pull off the brand from the olden days. Yeah, I mean, the, the Hammer brand has been in hibernation for the last 20 years, so it, it's it's difficult to say who who's, what, at what point it stopped being, you know, British and associated with Charles Gray and Christopher Lee, but... Uh, well, that's, is that a thing then? Is it because, obviously, me and you are a little, 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 little bit obsessed with films, shall we say, so <laughs> we, we know about the Hammer thing, but today's target audience, say, the 20-year-old, 20 20- 30-year-old, if it died along that time, it doesn't really have that much kudos attached to it, does it? It's yeah, I mean, I, I honestly don't know, but in any case, it's, it's, it's not a huge disappointment that Let Me In hasn't done as well as I expected, but I did think it would take a bit more money. Yeah, um, again, it might be another one that just, maybe people just pick up on DVD and pass it around, but I think you're more likely to have been passed around the original version. Yeah. 
which is apparently superior. At uh, number seven, we've got The Social Network. Which is really great. It's not the Citizen Kane of its day, as a couple of critics have claimed, but it is one of David Finch's best films. He's managed to do what Noah Baumbach never managed, which is to take a bunch of unlikable chauvinist people and make them incredibly fascinating for the best part of two hours. And some, some people honestly said it's the Citizen Kane of the, the modern... There were a couple of critics who were comparing it to The, to the Godfather and Citizen Kane. Uh, James King? No, not as far <laughs> as I can tell, although I wouldn't put it past him. James King likes this. At <laughs> <laughs> uh, number six, we've got Red, which is to you. the, um, stands for Retired Extremely Dangerous. Uh, stars Bruce Willis, Helen Mirren, John Malkovich, and Morgan Freeman. Basically, it's a whole load of retired CIA people, and they come back for one last mission. It kind of has echoes of the A-team attached to it, in that this, these people are being framed for something, they're trying to be taken out, so they just fight back against the system. And it's it's a strange one because it's full of really really laugh out loud laugh out loud bits, most mainly done by John Malkovich. And then there's some really brutal, violent fight scenes in it, and explosions and action. You just think it's a strange mix. Usually you get one or the other. With if it's a good comedy, the action's not so good. So I think it's quite good. I'm and it's it's doing quite well. It's been in the top ten for about yeah, it has it. It's a kind of slow burning hit. I mean, you were talking last week about was it a scene where there's a big action sequence and then Helen Mirren it, it cuts to her serving tea or am I yeah, getting it? Yeah, it's just like. It's, it's it's literally like mixing Die Hard and The Queen <laughs> together. If you just did a, Put it on the post a movie mashup, it's just <laughs> it's it's very very bizarre, but it works. So yeah. Um, yeah, I can recommend that, and I'm sure I'll be along at the Playhouse in the next few weeks as yeah, well. Yeah, I dare say it will. Um, right, just before we we'll take a break for the next thing, but there was a film which was just outside the top ten. Yeah, it's 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 in the kind of the, f the five outside. I went uh, last week. The kids are all right. Was in at number nine, and I said that I would go and see it. And uh, sure enough, true to form, I did on Tuesday afternoon. It's very very good. Um, like I said, I'm a, a sucker for anything that's got Julianne Moore in. I was the thing that most impressed me about the film was it managed to take something which was which has been a kind of big political issue in America, namely the issue, well, in inverted commas, of gay marriage, although it's, you know, not strictly marriage, um, and make it into a social issue rather than a political one, because it's not really a film which goes, hey, these guys are lesbians, isn't that really quirky and interesting? It's a film which basically says, no, actually, it's just about the kind of strength of family bonds and how important it is to stick together. I don't think it's perfect by any means. There, are, there is a central plot point involving Julianne Moore, who plays, um, the mother of one of the children, f kind of invade, falling in love, sort of, with the kid's biological father slash sperm donor, and I'm not entirely convinced that that works. And there are moments where it sort of drifts towards the kind of the smug region of ordinary people or the squid in the whale. There's a moment at the end where Julianne Moore kind of stands up and makes the film's message speech, and I kind of lost interest. But it is worth seeing. I like the performances. I like. I think the characters are really good, and. No, go and see it in the cinemas if you can, because it's really good fun. Is there, I know this happens a lot in like, where films where it portrays same-sex relationship, is there a lot of stereotypical behaviour? Do do is, is there like a, a camp best friend sort of thing who's there just for comic relief? Funnily not, I mean, that? that actually brings us on nicely to Scott Pilgrim, because there is a, a, a gay best friend in that, but um, no, by and large they play it, the film is absolutely about these people are completely normal rather than kind of picking up on all the details of, you know, how lesbians are different to ordinary couples. Right. So. Just, I just think, um, well, you mentioned Scott Pilgrim goes straight into that one. Yeah, um, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World is coming to the Playhouse on Monday afternoon at half past four. If you haven't seen Scott Pilgrim vs. the World already, go, because it is one of the best films of the year. It's the new film from Edgar Wright, who'd made Hot Fuzz, Shaun of the Dead, Spaced on TV. Um, it's a really great 
laugh out loud comic book adaptation and worth seeing alone for a very short supporting role by ex-Superman Returns actor Brian Ruth as a vegan with psychic powers. Yeah. <laughs> as, as you do. Yes. <laughs> I think that part was in, uh, X Factor, um, X Factor, in, uh, the Godfather trilogy, wasn't it? A psychic vegan in the Godfather yeah, trilogy. Yeah, one, one of the lesser known brothers. <laughs> <laughs> Right, what we'll do then, um, we'll take a break for a quick record and we'll be back with the rest of the UK's top ten singles. Bit of Morrissey there with First of the Gang of the Die. Lovely um, stuff. Yes, and we're back with the rest of the UK's top ten films. I might have said singles before that record, so I have to apologise. But uh, at number five, we've got Paranormal Activity 2. One of the most boring, unscary horror films you will see this year. It's essentially, you know, a knockoff of Blair Witch, which was itself a knockoff of Cannibal Holocaust. Don't go and see it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll say no more on that. Yeah, <laughs> just just don't go and see it. Speaking of don't go and see it, uh, we've got Saw 3D. Now, last week you launched the anti-Saw 3D campaign. Yes. And I take it that's still going on, so maybe I should let you lead on this one. I'm taking responsibility for this dropping from number one to number four, even though that would just probably happen anyway. <laughs> I'd like to take full credit for that, so uh, you're welcome, people. I would like people to see joint <laughs> credit as well, because I also didn't go and see it. It's allegedly, it's gonna be, it's the, if you, if you do have interest in them as well, cover it a little bit. It's supposedly the last one and the seventh, uh, of the long, long <laughs> running series. And I think from what I read about it, that basically, the reason that it's the last one is because there's nobody left in it. There's only so many <laughs> times you can keep bringing Jigsaw back. Um, it's be it's the first one to be done in 3D, so expect lots of, like, chainsaws being flying at the screens, lots of blood splattering at you, and... Jigsaw pointing at you. Yeah, <laughs> stuff like, a lot of, um, um, a lot of people I've spoken about, they said that they weren't impressed with the 3D, they said there was only, they could only think of three, they said there was only three... 3D bits in it, which I thought was an odd expression because the whole film is 3D, but I think they obviously mean, maybe there's a mentality when people go see it that they expect stuff to come at the screen and they count that and say, oh, there was, there was ten 3Ds in that. <laughs> it was, it's, it was, it was a, it was a 3D moments. Yeah, but it was a bizarre way of describing it. I thought, that's, that's what people are looking for. People was it actually filmed in 3D or was it retrofitted? It was done properly in 3D, yeah. Right, because that's, that's interesting. But yeah, so obviously maybe the directors don't know how to use it or they just thought, uh, we'll just we'll use it for depth, which I don't think depth is something you associate with the source franchise. <laughs> um, at number three, we've got Despicable Me. Which is also in 3D, although 2D prints are available, and in fact in America, the 2D version took more money, which kind of says 3D isn't working even as a money spinner. Um, it's, it looks okay, to be honest. I mean, I'm a bit agnostic about the whole connection with Ice Age. I mean, the first Ice Age film was okay, but they're incredibly kind of innocuous and modular. Um, I think it, it could be kind of good, disposable, half-term fun. I mean, I know it's not half-term anymore, but if it's, if it's still around and you've got nothing else to do on a weekend, you should probably catch it. Or, like me, I've got this earmarked for Christmas Day 2011, because, you know, in the afternoon they always show an animated film. Mm -hmm. I think it's always stuff like Shark Tale, a bit of Shrek. I'll wait for Despicable Me next Christmas. That's <laughs> <laughs> I'm prepared well, to wait that long. Shark Tale, I can assure you, but, uh, yeah, probably a good decision. Uh, number two, we've got Jackass 3D. Has no reason to be in cinemas at all. It's just, you know, a um, random collection of stunts in no particular order. I mean, even the television series got on your nerves after a couple of episodes. I don't understand why they've got the three films. Yeah, it's, um, as well, it's got to be because it's cheap to make. And, but the, the TV series finished. I can't years be that cheap to make. I mean, okay, the production costs. What about the insurance? Yeah, <laughs> but the, these basically it's a collection of idiots. So maybe they think, well, yeah, maybe they're not insured because if they were, if say Steve-O was killed by a crocodile, there wouldn't be a day of mourning, would there? <laughs> Let's no <be> comment. 
Yes, but it's, uh, to sum up, if, one of the situations in the film, uh, is people walking down the corridor and this giant hand will come out and hit them. That's and they the shout, trailer, isn't it? And they shout, high five. So if you think that's brilliant, then you probably love the rest of it. I mean, the first, I've seen the first two films. There's funny elements in the first one where, like, they're on a golf course and they have an air horn and it puts people off thing because watching, and not so much them, but it's the reaction of the, the golfers, the stuck-up golfers <laughs> chasing them with the golf clubs going. But that's, that's slightly derivative of, um, do you remember Dom Jolly's, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, Shut yeah. Your Mouth? Yeah. When he had that, that running joke about a guy sneak, with, with a pair of cymbals sneaking up behind people, banging them yeah. behind the ears and then just running away. It, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's a mountain version of that, it's just, uh, but yeah, it, with, I mean, the, th the parts of that that don't work is where they all say, like, oh, we're gonna have, like you said, someone's gonna wrestle the crocodile, and you just, you know that there's not actually any, in any danger. Yeah. Because if that guy dies, I would have heard about that before. <laughs> mm -hmm. It would have been a bit better. It would have been a bit better. Well, it would have been better if he hadn't died. Well, yeah, because be what we won't be sitting, sitting here next year going, hey, welcome to Jackass 4. <laughs> don't tempt fate. Let's they're all dead. Let's just move on. At number one, we've got Judith. <laughs> is, uh, the only reason it exists is because The Hangover took money. I'm very agnostic, if not sceptical, completely about The Hangover. The Hangover Part 2 is coming next year. On your own head be it if you went to see this. Yeah, it's, um, it's like, a, basically, if you've seen Plane Trains and Automobiles, you've probably seen a far superior film. It's, yeah, because that's John Hughes and, you know, with Steve Martin and John Candy who are proper comedians. Yeah, this is, um... Basically, the guy from The Hangover, the big guy with the beard, Zach, someone. Galifianakis, I, I think his name is. Ah, good translation. <laughs> um, he just plays the same character, and I'm guessing he, that's, he's gonna be typecast. He's just gonna be playing a lovable idiot for the rest of his life. <laughs> and Robert Downey Jr. Why is he in this film? Just doesn't know, it must have maybe took him two weeks to make him between Sherlock Holmes and Iron Man three or four. Quite, <laughs> quite possible. Uh, yeah, it's, um, I don't know, it's, I'm surprised it took so much money and gone to number one, if it, I'm honest, because the trailer, as I say, the trailer wasn't funny. No. And if the trailer's not funny, you do wonder about the rest of the film. How many weeks do you think it'll stay in the top ten? Because I don't think it's going to hang around for much longer. Yeah, I think what we're, we're initially, we're going to be facing the Harry Potter bandwagon is rolling into town yeah, ever, so, ever so soon, and I know that'll only take one place in the top ten, but it will basically blitz all the It will other. soak up a lot. Yeah. So. so that's gonna just overtake everything and when I've there's a request um that we cover Harry Potter in future episode, which we will do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. Absolutely. Can't ignore what is probably gonna be the most heavily marketed and the biggest film of the year, I'd say. Mm, certainly one of the most financially successful. I'm not sure biggest in terms of best, but it you know, it depends what parameters you're using. True. Um yeah, so what we'll do is stick on another record and then we will be back with this week's cool film, which is Flash Gordon. Yes, Gordon's alive. Indeed. Right then, it's time for this week's cult movie. Flash Gordon, um, BAFTA nominated, believe it or not, um, adaptation of the comic strips from the 1930s. There'd previously been a kind of whole series of Flash Gordon, uh, films and TV series from the 1930s with an actor called Buster Crab in. Um, were you familiar with Flash Gordon before we decided to talk about this? I'd, it's one of these ones, the films that, uh, as it grew up, I mean, when I remember when I was little, I remember, when the TV companies had rights to the issue of Star Wars basically every Christmas and Easter, yeah. and it was one of those films that Flash Gordon was in there, Back to the Future trilogy was in there, that was just on, but I never really watched and I've had to watch them as later life to yeah. fully appreciate and find and the story. Interestingly yeah. enough, the age at which you watch Flash Gordon for the first time will kind of affect your opinion of it, but we'll come on to that slightly later. But a background information first. Uh, it was uh, produced by the um, recently deceased Dina De Laurentiis, I think died yesterday. Um, an extraordinary career. He actually 
continued his work in sci-fi later when he produced David Lynch's Dune, which is widely considered to be a total mess, but without that we wouldn't have Blue Velvet, so it's it's not a total disaster. Yeah, that's how that features Sting coming, coming out of the Coming out shower. of Steam, wearing nothing but a pair of blue wings on his undercrackers. <laughs> Disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It also features Brad Dourif, who is no later Wormtongue in Lord of the Rings, wearing the most comical pair of eyebrows you have ever seen. <laughs> but yeah, more of that. The other interesting thing about it, and this is quite a surprise, it's directed by Mike Hodges, who is the guy who may get cast which is one of the kind of really important early 70s gritty crime thrillers. It's the one, you know, Michael Caine plays the London gangster who comes up to um, Newcastle and or Gateshead for the funeral of his brother and it, it transpires that there may have been foul play and it's one of the most important films of the early 70s. He came to this project after being fired from directing Damon, uh, Damien Omen 2 and this was his first completed film. Yeah, it's quite extraordinary. He was, he was apparently kicked off after three weeks for working too slowly. Right. But, uh, yeah, and it's just, you wouldn't thing, you know, on the one hand, incredibly gritty, nasty, savage crime thriller, and on the other hand, comic book. Yes. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a bit of a jump. Um, so let's, we'll play, um, some of the Queen soundtrack of this, which is probably the reason why the film is so famous after this, but we'll, we'll just, uh, give you the plot to start off with. Flash Gordon, who's played by real-life American footballer Sam J. Jones, uh, he's a celebrated American footballer who's flying back home to a game with, uh, a travel agent called Dale Arden, who's played by, uh, Melody, Melody Anderson. Uh, a number of freak weather conditions caused their plane to crash land near the laboratory of a Dr. Hans Zarkov, played by, uh, Indian actor, <laughs> played by, uh, Indian actor Chen Paul, who believes that all these disturbances in the weather are down to some kind of paranormal activity from outer space. They take off in his rocket and enter the universe of the evil Ming the Merciless, played by Ingmar Bergman's favourite actor, Max von Sydow, or Max von Sydow, depending on how you pronounce it. It transpires that he is planning to destroy the Earth by making it collide with the Moon, which he is moving with this, you know, intergravitational ray, and they have to stop him by uniting all the different peoples of Ming's universe, including the Hawkman featuring our very own Brian Blessed. Um, I think at this point, to give people a flavour of what the film is like, we should play the, the opening title sequence which was recorded by Queen and then released as a single in 1980 so uh, without any further ado. Yes, this is one that needs to be turned up to 11 without doubt. Here we go. And there it was. The best song you'll hear all day, I've got to say. <laughs> well, this is the thing. The Queen, I mean, I'm not the biggest Queen fan anyway and the soundtrack album of a piece on its own is quite kind of up in the air. But when you put it next to the film, it somehow kind of makes sense. It, like I said when I introduced it, it's, it's very much a film that your opinion of it will vary greatly depending on how old you are when you see it. I mean, I first saw Flash Gordon, because I've seen it about three or four times. I so first saw it when I was about ten or eleven years old, and it's one of those films where if you're a young boy, you can't believe your luck, because there's you no know, big action sequences and explosions and bright colours and scary villains and so forth. And then when you get older, you watch it again as a teenager, you think, actually, this is deeply embarrassing. You know, you've got Max von Sudov effectively dressing up as Fred Fu Manchu, you've got hammy acting, you've got special effects that would make Thunderbirds look slick, and yeah, yeah. I've seen, well, one thing which I've I've been trying to catch up with in clips that I saw. There's uh, a fight scene in it. If you use the word fight in inverted commas, where yes, with has an American football theme on it because mm. this guy's American footballer. He picks up a globe or an orb or yeah, something. It's, it's, it's a metal orb of some kind. And yes. uh, he just he, he then just just because originally he's getting his head kicked in by all the ballies, uh, then someone throws him a football and he's like, ah. Oh, I know what I'll do. I'll knock them out. And then fits where the the the, the bodies have huddles and stuff like that. <laughs> and watching it now, you just think, Ugh. but at the time, I think if I was about if I could go back to ten year old Paul, I'd probably be sat there going, 
best film ever. Yeah. <laughs> Edge of the seat sort of stuff. I, yeah, I don't think I ever had that extreme reaction, <laughs> but it is really good. I saw this again recently and it's, it, it's very much now that I get the joke. Cause here's, here's the thing. Here's the, the downside for Flash Gordon, if you like. There are a lot of technical shortcomings with it. I mean, it was made on the cheap. Uh, so you have, like I say, um, very, dodgy special effects. There's a moment in it early on where the the rocket of Hans Zarkov and friends are going into Ming's universe and it's clearly a piece of acetate being moved across the screen <laughs> a few frames at a time. Like You've got Button Moon. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> exactly like Button. It is Button Moon. In, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, then you've got things like the clouds of Cloud City, which looks like somebody just got a marbling kit and shot it from an odd angle. You've got cinematography where there's so much red on screen, it's like you're watching the whole film through a vat of claret. Uh, but despite all that, it is actually quite well directed in the sense that Mike Hodges is somebody who knows how to do action set pieces, he knows where to put the camera, and he does choreograph it very well. The plot of it, I mean, we kind of gave you an introduction to it, it's incredibly silly, but basically what happens is the, you know, Flash Gordon and friends get separated, he gets seduced by the Emperor's daughter who brings him, who stops him being executed, he goes off to a forest planet to try and win the allegiance of Prince Bright, no, it makes absolutely no sense. Yeah. And there are loads of kind of contrivances where you have to kind of suspend disbelief a lot, like, isn't it a great coincidence that the plane that uh, Dale and Flash crash landed right outside the laboratory just before the rocket was about to launch? Or, um, for instance, there's a whole sequence where um, Dr. Hanzarkov is about to be brainwashed, which is going to build up and up and up. It's like he's going to lose his mind. And then five minutes later, you see him and he's fine because he just <laughs> remembered bits of the Talmud and that apparently brought him out of the trance. Um, and there's also, I mean, I don't want to give the ending away because the ending is quite funny. But well, I think we, we're all familiar with the end that he saved every one of us. <laughs> well, very good. <laughs> but there is, a, there is a scene involving Ming the Merciless having a very um, close encounter with a spaceship and it's like, you could have moved. It was heading straight <laughs> for. <laughs> but here's the thing. In the end, none of that really matters. And here's why. There is a key comparison between this and another film from 1980 called Do You familiar with that? Uh, I've, I've, I'm familiar with that. I'm familiar it's with an, the it, song. Yeah. Um, s film by, I uh, can't remember who it's directed by, but it's, this, it's, a, it's the one in which Olivia Newton-John plays the daughter of Zeus, who is sent down from, uh, you know, the heavens to instruct Gene Kelly to create a roller disco. <laughs> and it has a soundtrack from the Electric Light Orchestra. Exactly. <laughs> the problem with that film, which makes it one of the naffest ever made, was it basically took an incredibly ridiculous story and took it so seriously that it was laugh out loud funny. The thing with Flash Gordon is that, it, you know, looking at it now, it knows it's silly. Because the original Flash Gordon comics were, you know, boys' own adventures. It's, you know, ordinary guys with six packs on faraway worlds fighting baddies to save the world and get the girl. It's not supposed to be treated like Batman or Superman. And it's, you know, interesting that at the time when Richard Donner was trying to, you know, do the Superman with all the Christ allegory stuff going on, mm -hmm. at the other end of the scale you have Mike Hodges basically saying, yeah, let's have a bit of fun with it and just play it all for camp value. It's, it's, as well, it's one of the films that you'll watch afterwards and you will remember it and you will, you will, it will have an effect on you rather than like every sort of, nowadays, there's a lot of generic action films you just sort of go, meh. Yeah, it, yeah, I mean, it had Shia LaBeouf in it, it wasn't that great. It doesn't have any lasting effect, whereas something like this, you'd be talking about it for ages. Exactly, even if, even if you're only talking about it because it's so left field, you don't know how to react to it. Um, I mean, the thing is, like I said, the, the comic books are not supposed to be taken seriously. There are some commentators out there who will argue at length that Flash Gordon is essentially an allegory for the West defeating fascism. Because there is a bit at the end where, you know, Flash Gordon unites all the rivaling worlds to fight the evil emperor, and you can read into that, but I think that's really stretching a point. 
The film is worth seeing just for the cameos, though. I mean, quite apart from the fact that it famously features Brian Blessed as the head of the Hawkman, you know, he gets to say, you know, Gordon's alive. Ivan, <laughs> <laughs> there's the big uh, kind of scene of the, the Hawkman swooping down on um, Ajax's rocket, which has been sent into the clouds to kill them all. Uh, but there's also um, Timothy Dalton, isn't it? Uh, future James Bond. And I actually think Timothy Dalton's the best Bond. I know that's controversial, but. I'm, I'm with you on that one because good. them two films. Just was so straight laced, and it wasn't as gritty as the Daniel Craig's ones and whatnot. But you wouldn't have the Daniel Craig ones without the Dalton films. But though, yeah, they were just—I can't watch a, a Bond James Bond. I cannot watch him. He's yeah. cringe, really. There's a wonderful moment in License to Kill, I think, where um, Dalton is—he's in a cocaine processing factory and he's hanging off the edge of a conveyor belt, and one of the Bond girls comes up to him and says, "Are you all right?" <laughs> now, if that had been Roger Moore, he would have just you know pulled himself up with a finger, straightened his tie. <laughs> raised an eyebrow and moved on. <laughs> but instead, Don's just like, just turn the machine off! <laughs> and I think, yeah, that's exactly how you do it. Yeah. But he's in this, he plays Prince Barin, who is, you know, the head of a woodland kingdom. He's sort of in love with the, with the Emperor's daughter, but he's, it's a kind of on-off, and he and Flash kind of... There's a really unusual scene, because he's dressed in green spandex, with a kind of village people moustache, and there is a scene in which he and Flash Gordon fight with whips, which is obviously quite homoerotic for, you know, people of a certain disposition. <laughs> there are also cameos from Richard O'Brien, who's the creator of Rocky Horror Picture Show and also the host of The Crystal Maze. He plays a double-crossing pipe player. Uh, Robbie Coltrane is in it very briefly as the guy who drops Flash Gordon off at the airfield. And, um, Deep Roy, who was the Oompa Loompa, who was, you know, replicated throughout in Tim Burton's Charlie and the Choctaw Factory, he has a very strange supporting part as one of Aura's kind of slave, and he gets dragged around on a chain, which is, you know, slightly questionable, involved, but also just not there's interesting a, to see. You have to remind us, I've watched, after watching the trailer and watching the clips and stuff, there's a guy who looks a little bit like Doctor Doom. Who's that character? That, I think, it's, it's either Krylus or Kritus, I don't know how you pronounce it. It's, it's the guy with the metal face. Yeah, is he like the henchman or... Yeah, he? he's the kind of right-hand man. I mean, that, you've actually fit this on really nicely, because there is a big argument that Flash Gordon, in its original form, not the, the 1980 version, was a big influence on Star Wars. Mm -hmm. And certainly you could argue that Krylus was the Darth Vader of his day, you know, it's the kind of second in command to the Emperor and he's, you know, dressed in metal and he's you know, evil. He's, he's a little bit cooler. <laughs> yeah, he is a little bit cooler, actually, <laughs> although I like Max von Sydow very much. Um, they're inter interestingly enough, if you look at this version of Flash Gordon and then you watch Return of the Jedi, you will think, Hang on a minute, Lucas ripped this off a bit, because th there are kind of obvious similarities, quite apart from the fact that, you know, it's, you know, heroes fighting against an evil emperor who wants to conquer the galaxy, who's assisted by a guy who's essentially a robot. Mm -hmm. You have, um, you know, a community of heroes living in the treetops who are all dressing green, and there is a monster with a beak and tentacles that tries to swallow people up, which, you know, in Return of the Jedi is the Sarlacc. Yes. So, no, I mean, there's a whole kind of debate, you know, how much of Star Wars was ripped off from things from Lucas's youth or how much was original idea. And I'm not going to get into that debate because, frankly, I can't be bothered. But there is a whole section of Flash Gordon which, to which Return of the Jedi owes a huge debt, even if they're not willing to acknowledge it. But I think the main reason to recommend it is that, it's, like you say, it's distinctive and it is just such good fun. I mean, I watched this again a few weeks back and I just couldn't stop laughing. Not laughing and like, this is pathetic and shoddily made, even though it is slightly shoddily made, but just because everyone in it seems to be having fun and they know that it's camp and they know it's ridiculous. And it, it zips along, it's, no, it's less than two hours long, I think, I think it's actually only 90 minutes, and it's just a triumph of both the sublime and the ridiculous. And if you want something to kind of unwind to after a long day at work, you can't really go better than Flash Gordon. I would say with, with Christmas rapidly approaching, um, it's bound to be on over the, the Yeah, I would, I wouldn't bet against it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's, uh, 
just want to put on the old Sky Plus when it comes on then. Absolutely. But yeah, so when you watched it, it didn't feel, because you'd seen it a few times, it didn't feel like an ordeal, you weren't like saying, oh, I can't wait to get this. Well, it this is the thing, the last- sort of flowed through. This is the thing, the last time I'd watched it, I didn't really like it, because I last watched it when I was in my late teens, about 17 or 18, and I thought, this isn't very good. And then I kind of, I'd rented it, because I'd uh, heard it, it was like the 30th anniversary or something, and then I put it back on and actually thought, I've been so wrong about this, this is really good. <laughs> We should get you to watch it every year <laughs> and review it every year. Well, just kind of love, hate, love, hate, love, ever. Yeah, and it'd be it'd be like the the Star Trek sort of sequel theory that you'll one year you like it, one year you won't. You'll just think, yeah, it's rubbish this year. It's better this year. That sort of thing. Well, I'm not a real Star Trek fan, but I'll take your word for that. Should we, should we if text him? We think we should subject him to Flash Gordon every year <laughs> on his birthday. <laughs> Forevermore. There are worse things in the universe. True. Um, I think what we'll do is we'll go straight now into the new releases because we are we're kind of running out of time. So. Yeah, I've talked quite a lot. Um, so shall we start with uh, We Are What We Are? Yeah, that's how it's, it's more unique and... Um, it's the edgier release of the Yeah, week. I don't know if, it, if it's going to be released everywhere, but I'm sure you can pick it up somewhere locally. As far as I'm aware, side. it is at the time side, as yeah. far as I'm aware. Interestingly, before we move on, um, Mike Hodges, who directed Flash Gordon, is actually a patron of the Tyneside Cinema. Did you know that? I didn't. Oh. No, so that's where they get their money from for quite a lot of the time. So We Are We Are, which is a Mexican social realist cannibal horror film, which has been billed by one critic as... Not another one. <laughs> <laughs> one critic described it as Guillermo del Toro rubbing shoulders with Pedro Almodovar. Which sounds, you no, know, interesting. I mean, I'm a fan of Guillermo del Toro, certainly. I mean, Almodovar is a bit more forgettable. Um, the story is there's a family living in Mexico City. It's a father, a mother, and three children. At the start of the story, the father dies in the streets, leaving the family to fend for himself. Nothing unusual with that. The twist is the family are cannibals. And if you've seen the trailer for this, it kind of starts off with, uh, you know, kind of just people staring at each other very kind of pallidly in rooms. And then all hell breaks loose. Um... It's interesting that because of the wave of horror revisals we've had recently, you know, we've had vampires with the Twilight, Let the Right One In, Let Me In, of course, werewolves with the Underworld Saga, zombies with, you know, Shaun of the Dead and Zombieland. Cannibals haven't really come back into fashion recently because there's this whole spate yeah. of cannibal films in the 80s, you know, Cannibal Holocaust, Cannibal Ferox, Cannibal Apocalypse, and they kind of, then Peter Greenaway came along with The Cook, The Thief, His Wife and a Lover and basically turned cannibalism into an art form. And I think that it's not going to be for everyone, but if you're into you know, your kind of early 80s cannibal movies and you like Mexican horror, including Guillermo del Toro and Alfonso Cuaron and that sort of thing, it might be for you. Yeah. It's a bit niche, but it's, yeah, there's, there's, it's something, there's something out there for everyone. Exactly. And if you don't like that, we can go a bit more mainstream. Yeah. Um, should we do Flipped before we uh, go on to Skyline? Or yeah, yeah, do, yeah, yeah. Um, this is on limited release, but it is probably worth catching. It's the latest from Rob Reiner, who, no, of course, made Spinal Tap, but he hasn't really made a good film since A Few Good Men. Did you see A Few Good Men? Uh, no. You can't handle the truth. <laughs> I haven't seen that one. I've, uh, big fan of Spinal Tap, though. Mm -hmm. Just, uh... I watched, I, t I haven't said that, I watched Almost Famous last night. Oh, yeah. There's definite elements of Spinal Tap all throughout there. Yeah, there are. Yeah. I think that was trying to be, I don't think intentionally, <laughs> that was trying to be a very cool sort of uh, looking at the, like, fond memories of the 70s rock scene, but just sort of going, 
Spinal Tap. It's <laughs> <Yes>, quite <laughs> obviously. Um, so this is kind of if you want to compare it to one of Reiner's previous works, it's it's closest in a way to Stand by Me in the sense that it's a kind of a coming of age story set in the 1950s. Uh, it follows two young teenagers called Bryce and Julie. Julie is in love with Bryce, but he doesn't return her affections because he's afraid of girls. Uh, he tries to avoid her, but that's a bit tricky because they live on opposite sides of the same street and they go to the same school. And the film plays out over the period of six years. The, the twist, if there, it can be called that, is that it jumps back and forth between their two perspectives, which you can, of course, well, you can flippantly link back to Rashomon, although in many ways it's sort of closer to, um, Christopher Nolan's film, uh, The Prestige. Did you ever see The Prestige? I did, yes. It's a fantastic film. Yes. Um, I, I, I was so tempted to give away the end in there, oh, but I won't. <laughs> <laughs> Again, brilliant performance by David Bowie as Nikola Tesla, despite the fact that he can't do a Romanian accent. Um, in the sense that in The Prestige you see kind of the events from one point of view and then later on you'll see them again and there'll be a bit extras like, okay, that's what happened next. It's not going to be a great film by any means. I mean, Reiner, like I say, has been off the boil for quite some time. I mean, he had made one of the worst films of the 1990s, which is a comedy called North. Did you ever be subjected to that? No, it hasn't come across the radar. A very early Elijah Wood film in which he plays a kid who divorces his parents and stars Bruce Willis uh, as a man in a bunny costume. <laughs> it's like Tony Darko. <laughs> yeah, although it kind of shows that's where he got the idea from. <laughs> Rob Reiner has a legal case now. Like I said, it's not going to be great and it is on limited release, but it might be kind of charming and sweet in a slightly forgettable kind of way. Yeah. Right. Um, the big one, the one which was, I've seen advertised a lot and it is, <laughs> it, you'll see it, you either had one of two reactions and I thought that looks infinitely cool or you thought, I've already seen Independence Day. <laughs> That's exactly my reaction. Um, we're talking, of course, about Skyline, uh, the latest, more than slightly derivative sci-fi action film uh, from the Strauss brothers who gave us the cinematic abomination that is Aliens vs. Predator Requiem. Which has one of the most deplorable scenes of all time in that, which I can't even mention at this hour of the day, <laughs> but uh, something about the alien trying to plant its eggs. It was... Oh, uh, yeah, I know the one you mean. Yes, just the... What, which film studio exec went, yeah, we'll leave that in. <laughs> <laughs> so, the story is, um, a bunch of party revelers in Los Angeles, are there any other kind, um, wake up the morning after a party to find these spaceships hovering over the skyline, hence the title. Um, they are, the spaceships are emitting these powerful rays of light, and the, uh, the, the plot point is, if you look straight into the light, you vanish into thin air. So you're thinking, okay, maybe slightly cool, but uh, you're kind of looking a bit sceptical. Yeah, I'm, 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 after, after the, the first two sentences you said there, one, people at a party in New York, cool people, I'm thinking Cloverfield beginning. Yeah. People uh, getting disintegrated, I'm thinking War of the Worlds. Yep. Is it rip off anything else? Is there, uh, is well, you've mentioned Independence Day, um, and it, there is actually a through line with that because the, the Strauss brothers have a background in visual effects, and they actually did the visual effects for The Day After Tomorrow, which was also directed by Roland Emmerich, and you know, made the same thing. There is also, I mean, even the kind of, the light turning people into aliens and all, or making them vanish, mm. I mean, you can link that back even to Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yeah. Um, whichever version you choose, because the whole thing about Invasion of the Body Snatchers is people get turned into aliens when they're asleep. And to have it, well, let's just kind of make it so that they're just woken up and it, it doesn't mm. really fit. Incidentally, if you want to see the best version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, go and get the 70s remake with Donald Sutherland in, which has one of the scariest endings in the world. And I don't want to say what the <laughs> ending is, but it's just brilliantly made. So, I mean, like I say, these guys have a background in visual effects. They made this film for something like $20 million, which for a blockbuster is, it's nothing. 
But it does look like a film where they've spent all the money on the effects and it, not had anything left. It might the explain if it's twenty million and the fact that I've, I know a lot of critics have literally destroyed it. Mm -hmm. um, is the fact that it's been sort of, it's not been released in the summer, it's been sort of buried early November before, oh, yes, before the Harry a, Potter storm. It's been come. on a shelf. Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've, I looked at probably the same, if you've seen the trailers, there's a bit in the trailer where all the bodies are being sucked up into the spaceship and you thought, that's quite cool. But then you thought, what else is there? Yeah, it, it is like, you look at it and it's like watching the trailer for one of those new Call of Duty computer games. You think, actually, that's really realistic. But then, not actually, actual there's game nothing, footage. <laughs> yes, actually, there's nothing else going on underneath, and it's it's not going to be worth any money. Yeah, I think it's one I might. Uh, I think I think it's down uh, to see. I think I, I think I see it just because it's one. I think it'll look good. I think it, I say with the visual effects, it, it'll be one that looks good. Probably won't have any substance, and I forgot about it t like twenty minutes after I've finished seeing it. Well, why don't you go and see it next week, and we'll come back on Saturday and see if you can remember anything. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe as soon as you look at the screen, you'll vanish. <laughs> I wish. Uh, there's some films I wish I'd. That's vanish. how they're doing. That the film Troy, the worst film I've seen in the cinema. Mmm. Yeah, good candidate. I think it was about five hours long, at least that's what it felt like. <laughs> <laughs> With Brad Pitt running around going, I've got blonde hair and a six pack. I don't care. Yes, we know. <laughs> Get over it. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, I mean, it's, I think it's one to uh, see. It'd be, it, it'd just be interesting to see how much more stuff, it, it, maybe it's a bit like movie bingo. So you sort of tick things off and go, ah, that's from Independence Day, that's from that. Oh, that's the bit where they, uh, Upload in using Jeff Goldblum's Apple Mac and <laughs> destroy the spaceship. <laughs> Stuff like that. Hello, boys. <laughs> I'm back. <laughs> yeah, there's going to be. I mean, there'll be bits like there'll be a dog and the dog will not die. And the Americans will win, which always yeah. happens. And there'll be no show. spaceships above any other country in the world, but just America. And it's just. I think it's one. Well, of there will be, but only over the major you no know, landmarks. Like there'll be one over the Eiffel Tower. Yes. And one over the Arc de Triomphe or whatever. One over the big Tally ho, boys. Let's go to war. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you go and see it. I'm going to probably uh, go and see the Mike Lee early next week. And I will we'll, take we'll the bullet for you listeners. So don't go and see it this week. If I'm still alive, if I haven't vanished into the screen, yes. then you go and see it the week after. You should be doing the next show on life support <laughs> and I should be communicating <laughs> via... I could get the yes. beeps to co communicate in Morse code if you can transcribe that to the listeners. <laughs> <laughs> I think we'd need more than an hour to do that. Yeah. <laughs> we should uh, quickly mention a couple of other smaller releases. Yep. Um, you Again, which is the latest non-comedy from Andy Finkman, who directed She's the Man with Jennifer Aniston, I think that was. You're already looking despairing. Uh, yeah. Uh, so the story mm -hmm. is Crystal Bell, who was last, Kristen Bell, who was last seen in uh, When in Rome, which I think actually went straight to DVD over here. I mean, it took no money at all in America. Yeah, she, the last thing I saw would be, f she's obviously famous from Veronica Mars on TV, but she was in Forgetting Sarah Marshall, where she... That was, I enjoyed that film, uh, but she was literally like a bit of Ikea furniture in the corner. She was very wooden. <laughs> and I suppose it helped Russell Brands launch his career because he looked brilliant compared to her. Yeah, so. yeah, I, I remain very sceptical about Russell Brand, but I'll take your word for it. So the story is she come, she's a successful PR mogul, already I don't believe it. Um, she comes home to her brother's wedding, but she finds that he's married her nemesis from high school and hilarity ensues, or rather doesn't. It's interesting that she just like, she never, <laughs> she didn't know, she never spoke, I've started dating this girl, I've got engaged twice, just like, no, we're getting married. <laughs> <laughs> how how how, it's, how can you feel sympathy for someone who's so obsessed with their own career that she didn't find out what her brother was up to? Yeah, <laughs> but the really depressing thing about me is that there are supporting roles for Jamie Lee Curtis and Sigourney Weaver, who play the respective aunts of either side of the marriage, and I just they don't need the money. Why? They they too have a rivalry. 
Yes, and, and, it's, and it's like a mirrored image, and it's like, oh, yes. sweet to Jesus. And also, the, the way in which, I mean, I've, I've seen a trailer for this just, because it is rubbish, and it is kind of shot in that kind of way where everyone's wearing an incredibly bright shade of yellow. So you think, yeah, we're just going to be happy and kooky and zen, and like, shut up, you're not working, go away. Yeah, as you said before, the, um, Flash Gordon sort of colour scheme is red, and lots of. Yes. This is just sunshine. It's like, how much more red can we have on the screen? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and it, it has actually been compared in a by Chris Tookie of the Daily Mail to Bride Wars, and that Classic. is <laughs> yes, high praise indeed. So on that recommendation, don't see it. The uh, the only other thing worth mentioning is uh, as a French film out called My Afternoons with Marguerite, which is a uh, new film with uh, Gérard Depardieu, which is again I think showing on limited release, and it will be at the Tyneside. Uh, he plays a semi-literate lonely man in his early to mid-fifties, who develops uh, an emotional bond with an elderly lady who is passionate about reading, and uh, has loads and loads of books. It's a very simple story, by the looks of things, and it's the kind of thing that if it was made in English, it would be completely kind of predictable and ho-hum. But I think if you're a fan of the work of Lasse Hallström, who now made Chocola, um, ten years ago, which is, which is kind of alright and sickly sweet and okay, mm -hmm. then it might be your sort of thing in a sense. It's not going to be anything memorable, and it's not going to be Depardieu's finest work by any means, but it might, you know, fill in the time on a lonely afternoon. Yeah, so that's, uh... Is that, so that's out this week and it's probably more likely to be at the time side as you're saying that. Yeah, um, of the ones we've discussed, We Are What We Are and, uh, yeah, My Afternoons with Margarita showing at the time side, I think Skyline will be on at the, the gate. Be the everywhere. And yeah, Des and, and the Silver Link, but, uh, the others you might have to travel for. Yes, um, so yeah, we've got about, ooh, we've got a minute and a half left. Not the time I had Stevie Wonder lined up, but, uh, Steve will have to stay locked and loaded for next week, unfortunately. He'll get his revenge, he'll cut me off next <laughs> time. <laughs> so, yeah, so we've been through Flash Gordon, we've been through Top Ten. Um, what, you know, just to quickly recap, uh, for Monday afternoon at the Annex Playhouse for the local people. Scott Pilgrim vs. The World is showing from Help Us 4. It's one of the best films of the year, and it may even be Edgar Wright's best film, so if you're a fan of Shaun of the Dead or Hot Fuzz, go see. This week's movie of the week, I think, is We Are What We Are, although yeah. it's not um, it's a little bit more of an esoteric choice. If you, if that's not your sort of thing and you haven't seen either Social Network or Birkenhead, go and see those, or of course go and see Another Year. Definitely. Um, so yeah, we're gonna be working hard throughout the week, um, we're gonna be possibly looking at getting a podcast available or a download of the show, so previous catch-up and shows so you can keep, keep, keep up with date and see what, uh, what we've thought of previous films gone by, stuff like that. Yeah. So that's when we're working hard, and do you know what next week's cult film's gonna be yet, or are we still, um, still in the process? We've had a kind of 80s effort and a 60s effort, so let's do The Man Who Fell to Earth from ah, the 70s. David Bowie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, so that'll be next week, um, on Lionheart Radio, and stay tuned, time for the news, and then we'll have guests the year at 11 o'clock.